This is the Ethics Lab podcast, exploring the path from better knowledge to practical results in healthcare ethics. You know, there's this kind of mind-opening understanding that there is the possibility for a relational database from genomic to consumerism to individual behaviors that can be so incredibly precise. Since the Human Genome Project was declared complete in April of 2003, there has been great anticipation for medical treatments tailored to the individual genetic makeup of patients. For you, for patients, for family members, you may be wondering where have most of the advances been made since that time? And what ethical questions are arising as this work continues to evolve? Our guests today are two national experts that have been immersed in this work over the past decade. Damon Hostin, CEO of the Precision Medicine Alliance, and Amy Lynn McGuire, Director of the Center for Medical Ethics and Health Policy at Baylor College of Medicine. My name is Kevin Murphy, and this is Ethics Lab. So this is Damon Hostin. I'm the CEO of the Precision Medicine Alliance, which is a joint venture between Catholic Health Initiatives and Dignity Health. And so the singular entity has been put together to bring solutions and platforms and increase accessibility of precision medicine into our community systems, as well as to partner with our academic partners, industry, and other groups. So my background, I guess, in genomics started, uh, I worked with Craig Venter at Solera Genomics on the first human genome and was published there. I then went to industry in pharmaceuticals, diagnostics, and pharmaceutical services and targeted therapeutics, ending up into the translational research world and then clinical research world in healthcare and progressed uh, into this position where I'm bringing many of those pieces together across pharmaceuticals, diagnostics, genomics, and healthcare for the betterment of the communities we serve. And a funny story with you and I, Damon, is that I can remember meeting you on the way into work one morning and asking what you did on the weekend. And I think one of your responses was you were splicing strawberry jeans with your daughter in the basement. And all I did was play volleyball with my daughter. And I thought, what kind of dad am I? Uh, certainly not as... Uh... Well, my daughter's terrible at volleyball. That's what happened. <laughs> great. Great, Damon. Amy, we'll go to you next. Okay, so um, I'm Amy McGuire. I am the Leon Jaworski Professor of Biomedical Ethics and the Director of the Center for Medical Ethics and Health Policy at Baylor College of Medicine. And my background in this space is that I'm, by training, I'm a lawyer and a bioethicist. And I've been very engaged in studying ethical and legal and policy issues related to emerging technologies with a special focus on human genetics and genomics. And I've been working on these issues since I, for the last 10 to 12 years, and has been involved in thinking about the ethical issues uh, related to human genome sequencing since the first humans were sequenced back in 2007. Let me offer you this scenario and then ask you folks a couple of questions. First question will be, is this an accurate vision of what precision medicine could or currently does offer? And if not, how would you paint the picture? So, Damon, imagine a time when you and I could have a simple blood test on the way to the doctor's office, 
arrive at an appointment to find our doctor fully prepared with a diagnosis. Imagine that the ideal medicine would be already identified based on my genetic makeup and perfectly formulated to avoid side effects for which I am susceptible. Would that be an accurate picture of what precision medicine offers? If not, what's a better picture? So it's not. I think that precision medicine in many ways seeks to look at all the determinants of health. And while the genomics is a newer facet of the person and the technologies to get that information are only now becoming a part where it's democratizable, that scenario in part may be related to that information, but could be related to many other types of information that are traditional healthcare or knowing the patient better. And so maybe one way of looking at that is if in healthcare, the idea is to honor the patient by knowing them deeper, this is another facet that we can bring into play with all the other variables in order to understand uh, what you should do. In the story you just told, you've walked into a hospital for a general wellness-like appointment. That is a low acuity type situation. And so the role of genetics there plays very differently than if you were, let's say, an advanced cancer patient or in the NICU or in the coronary unit. So it depends. Currently, with the precision medicine technology we have now, what are the therapeutics we're currently offering clinically? Sure. So uh, advanced oncology has been the clear leader with almost nothing else comparing to it. So if you consider that the biologic mechanisms of uh, oncology, cellular division, uh, the way in which growth cascades and cells occur, and that we can map that and know that individual genes have different mutational status that would tell you how to treat that individual tumor. And now the pharmacopoeia or the amount of drugs is in line with the biologic actionability of many of those choices. The precision medicine tests help outline where you should go, what the strategy should be, and where you shouldn't go. So very heavily, particularly in non-small cell lung cancer, but we're also starting to see for the first time therapeutics being approved for all cancers because if they act similarly genetically, it doesn't matter what organ system they came from. So that has been another key revolution. Now, there are other areas, I'd say in cardiology, there have been precedents in HIV, as well as behavioral health, in which genetic contribution to the consideration of decisions of how you treat have come into play, but nowhere is this as heavily invested in, as well as progressed as in oncology right now. And so if I'm a cancer patient, are precision medicines available within various types of cancers or only perhaps at this time in a few? So this is where, if we look at the point in time today, much of the value that we've generated from the knowledge of biology and uh, the advent of the first wave of these biologically informed therapeutics, it is where enough trials have been done to get enough evidence to allow insurance coverage of the accessibility for these drugs. 
which is different from what I'll call molecular plausibility, which means we intuitively understand the biology, we see it in another tumor, but there's yet to be an approval or insurance coverage of access. So that's where the most advanced cancer centers hold research completely in line with the provision of care so that you can access what's molecularly plausible without waiting for it to be completely insurance covered and approved on label. And we know we're in this process. So as time goes on, we'll see less and less questions being asked from a research standpoint and more evidence providing more drugs for more interactions. So it's going to be fluid for some time. And for physicians who are practicing now within oncology, what are the shifts that precision medicine offers to them within their work and their expertise? Well, so new therapeutics are always very welcome, of course. There is actually a very small amount of biologically driven therapeutics that are able to be used by the community physician without a clinical trial infrastructure. And that can be very frustrating. And so uh, the toolbox is expanding, but there's still, at least as it relates to accessibility of the testing and of the drugs, I would say it's a matter of seeing these things happening, but not knowing until it's right in front of your face. Unless you're in a uh, cancer center, which is deeply invested into clinical research, and knowing that you're asking what research questions could happen in line with what clinical opportunities are there for the patient. So in fact, the opportunity of a research enrollment is part of the tagline for the Precision Medicine Alliance, which is that everyone deserves opportunity and understanding the biologic nature of one's tumor and the choices in both care and research is opportunity and should not only be at tertiary cancer centers, but in the community as well. Amy, let's go to you at this point. Uh, given the overview that Damon has offered and given your work in this area, what are the kinds of questions that come up for you as someone who comes from a legal background, trained as a bioethicist? Yeah, so I think Damon made a really nice distinction between the goals of precision medicine in terms of developing targeted therapeutics like we see in the field of oncology and developing sort of a comprehensive risk profile, which was the question that you really started with of can you walk into your physician's office, get your genome sequenced and know your diagnosis and what to do about it. And so I think there are separate issues kind of associated with each of those. Obviously, the development of targeted therapeutics is, is what we really want to see. I mean, that's the promise of precision medicine, right? It's, it's getting the right treatment to the right person at the right time based on not only their genomic information, but as Damon mentioned, all of their environmental exposures, family history, symptomatology, et cetera, getting sort of a complete deep picture of, of the patient and then knowing enough about sort of their, their biology to target treatments to them directly. There, I think, you know, we have seen the most progress in the area of oncology and the, the struggle that uh, or the, the challenge that, that Damon has brought up with regard to the field moving quickly enough to demonstrate utility, especially when you're talk talking about smaller and smaller groups of cohorts that you're going to be able to show some clinical benefit to based on a particular targeted therapy and how that comes into issues around access and, and 
insurance reimbursement and coverage, I think, is, is a major issue there. A lot of what we talk about in in sort of the world of ethical, legal, and social issues related to precision medicine has to do more with this idea of getting a risk profile. So there have been many people who have said, you know, one day everybody's going to walk into their doctor's office and they're going to get their genome sequenced and they're going to have all of their sort of wearable devices and their biomarker information stored and we're going to get this sort of quantified picture of everybody and be able to predict their future risk of disease and then be able to engage in uh, preventative medicine to maintain healthier lives. So that's another vision of, of precision medicine. Um, and that raises, a lot, I think, a lot of issues. We are able to use genomic medicine and, and some aspects of precision medicine increasingly for diagnostic purposes, particularly if you have individuals who have undiagnosed genetic diseases, we can do whole genome sequencing. And in about 26% of cases, 25% of cases across different studies that have been done, they've shown that you can uh, get a diagnosis based on whole genome sequencing. A lot of that is predicated on the, the need for us to have massive amounts of data from very large numbers of people to be able to access to make sense of the information for the individual. So I think one of the, the first and big challenges associated with that has to do with data sharing. It's been recognized for a long time that one of the major bottlenecks in precision medicine is going to be not having access to enough data at the population level to be able to do accurate and meaningful interpretation and analysis. And so Genomics really started with the Human Genome Project with a culture of open science and broad data sharing. And I think there's still that culture in the field, although it has been somewhat mediated by concerns about privacy, because of course your DNA is unique to you as an individual. It's also familial by nature, so we can learn something about some of your family members from your DNA, your genetic relatives. And so there needs to be sort of a balance and a weighing of making all kinds of health information, including genomic information, available on a very broad scale and protecting individuals' privacy and protecting them from potential harm. Are there test cases that have kind of arisen that have kind of sponsored some debate around that issue specifically? Well, so I think, so a lot of people have said, why don't we just have sort of a national database of everybody's health information and genomic information, and wouldn't that solve a lot of problems? And I don't think we are ever probably going to get there in the United States. There have been other countries that have done large national biobanks that have tried to collect health data and genomic data for the public health, for the benefit of the public health. I think our values in the United States around autonomy and individualism and privacy are probably going to prevent us from doing that. But there has been a major push, at least through the NIH and other other industries to or industry players to develop these large databases. You, the All of Us Research Project, which is funded by the National Institutes of Health, aims to collect health data for a million volunteers in the United States, and they are well underway in their efforts, and they're trying to do it in a very trustworthy 
way so that people are protected as they participate in this project. We also have similar initiatives like through the Million Veterans Project, through the um, VA hospitals. And then we see industry getting involved. So increasingly, whether people are fully aware of it or not, I think Google and you know, 23andMe and Amazon are starting to get into this game where they are using their talents and their resources to create the platforms to collect large amounts of health data, including genomic data from, uh, from individuals. So I don't know if those are, are really test cases. I can give you an example of why this is so necessary. And, you know, I always think it's helpful to think about individual patients. So there was a particular baby that was born about two and a half years ago in a large medical center. And most babies that are born in the United States and in every state tend to have a newborn screen that's done on them. So they get a heel prick, a little bit of their blood sample is sent off to the state, and they get tested for certain metabolic conditions that if you identify them early in life, you can treat them, and it has a significant impact on the baby's health. And so this is, as a public health measure, is done in almost every state. So this particular baby, I'll call her Sarah, she was born and had her newborn screen done, and she failed her newborn screen, which means that she had a positive result, and they didn't quite know what was wrong with her. They did a bunch of lab work. It didn't seem like what, what they thought was wrong with her was really wrong with her. She failed three times on the newborn screen. And so it was recommended that she do whole genome sequencing and mitochondrial sequencing to see if they could find whether there was a genetic variant that could be, you know, in, could be, couldn't be associated with a particular um, medical condition. So when they did this, what they found is that she had a variant in her ATP6 gene when they did mitochondrial sequencing, and she was homoplastic for it, which means that it was in every cell of her body. And they went, the way that you interpret this to say, okay, well, what does this mean, is that you go to these databases and you say, okay, who else who we've sequenced has had this particular variant, and what did it mean for them? What is their health status? So when they went to the databases, of course, not everybody, as I mentioned, in the United States is in these databases. In fact, only a very, very small fraction of people are in these databases. And they found that there were four cases that had been reported of, of children who had had this particular mutation, and all four of them had been sequenced because they had a devastating disease called Lee's disease, which is like ALS in children. And the challenge is that what does that mean for this particular patient, for Sarah, and we don't really know because we don't know if there are, you know, tens of thousands of other people walking around on this planet who have this mutation who don't have Lee's disease, or if the only time we see this mutation is when we have patients who have Lee's disease. And so it's very difficult to interpret this from a precision medicine perspective, even in terms of what this means diagnostically for this patient, unless we can get you know, a vast amount of data from a large number of people so that we can put it into context and understand what it means for individual patients. So from that point of view, we're still, uh, while still very advanced, we're still evolving. Yeah, I think we have a ways to go. And I think it's going to take, you know, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be a, an effort to get people to voluntarily to uh, share their information in light of the potential privacy concerns that are involved, given the fact that this is personal health information that's potentially identifiable. And so how can we set up, and so one, you know, one of the things I work a lot on is thinking about that, the privacy issue and how can we set up our society, our systems, our laws, our regulations in a way that provides sufficient protection for people that they can begin to see the trade-offs 
in a way that the potential benefits to themselves, to other patients, to society in general outweighs those concerns about privacy. So this is Damon. The advent of societal good that comes from this, what's laid out, maybe an ongoing progression of work that eventually leads towards harmonized data sets and getting EMRs to speak to each other or eliminating the Tower of Babel and clinical episodes. There's all this incredibly hard, diligent work going on. But at the same time, the entire field is having the issue forced by non-healthcare. And so uh, Amy had brought up 23andMe and privacy, and rightfully so. But then I'm going to sort of share another story. So I'm at a barbecue, and people generally have come to know what I do. And I guess that also means that I am a recreational genetic counselor in line with their recreational genomic testing. So the very information that you know, is needed to be kept private is also now being shown to me on everyone's smartphone and saying, is this bad to me? I'm not a clinician. So this is someone who's done a 23andMe test, yes. gets the information, shows you the Oh, yeah. And the they're in line now. So people say, I had this done. So now there's a small conga line of people that want to show me their 23andMe tests. And generally, if we're walking well at 40-something, there's not going to be that many shocks. But there is one. There's a few, but one in particular. And by the way, the American uh, College, of Me College of Medical Genetics will tell you exactly which ones. But one is the Alzheimer's risk. Okay. So 23andMe does test for it. I mean, there are, I think, some controls on whether it's revealed to the customer or not. But it's there. So that is probably one of the scariest things someone could come across. And this is the whole story of how even the Greeks had trouble reconciling what would it mean to know the future and what is the cost of knowing the future. So this is, of course, a universal human endeavor. So people are saying, what do you think of my genetic profile? So in my heart, I'm laughing at how free people are being recreationally with this information yet knowing how Loctite it needs to be. Now, the story gets better in a couple ways. Someone then comes over and says, well, have you had your genome done? And I said, yes, I, I have. I did it at companies I worked at, as well as I've done 23andMe. And so she said, do you have it? I said, do you have what? Do you have the Alzheimer's gene? And I was like, well, since you ask, which by the way, I guess, genetic decorum and protocols yet to make its way into Emily Post. But um, <laughs> I was like, since you ask, no, because it was an absurd question, of course, but she didn't know I wanted to be gracious. But no, I do not have I, the marker for Alzheimer's since you ask. So she says, well, you know, my husband's father has it. And my husband's really nervous about it. And so he doesn't want to do this testing because he's nervous that he may have it. But what if you were to spit in the vial and so he gets your genome and he can then rest easy that he's not going to get it? And I said, that is the most unethical thing I think I've ever heard at a cocktail party. 
And um, well, not really. But uh, one thing I'd said was, I, I won't do that. And it's an incredible question. And I'm going to be using this at work to sort of say, you know, what is the level of paternalism that actually occurs with an access to medicine uh, and access to genetic information? So this story is actually pretty incredible. And for those of us skilled in the art, it is almost mind blowing because it's things that we worry about. So I'm telling this story actually to an, an absolute leader in genetics and genomics. And without batting an eye, uh, he says, well, you should have done it. I said, well, why should you I? You should have spit into the yeah, eye. Yeah, I, I should have done this. I was like, why on earth? And he said, well, so then you have a practical joke about paternity with their kids. <laughs> so, so Damon, I have, so the, the story is really interesting. And you mentioned that it's, it was one of the most unethical things that you heard at a cocktail party. It's also, um, I think, one of the biggest, it, it reflects one of the biggest problems that I see from a societal perspective in terms of genomics and precision medicine, which is it's also scientifically inaccurate, right? So for this particular woman at the cocktail party to think that whether or not her husband's DNA shows that he has two copies of the APOE4 variant, which is shown to be associated with Alzheimer's disease, which is what they test for, will tell him definitively whether or not he's going to get Alzheimer's is false. This is, it is a, it's a, it's a predictive piece of information. And, and it's really fascinating because actually when we sequenced Jim Watson's genome, which was one of the first human genomes to be sequenced, he said, I want to have my genome sequenced and I want to put it out on the internet and I want to know everything that's in it except for my APOE4 gene variant because I don't want to know if I'm at risk for Alzheimer's disease. And it was astonishing that this is the father of genetics, right? This is one of the co-discoverers of the structure of DNA. He clearly intellectually understands how genetics works. And yet, from a human nature perspective, all of us, including Jim Watson, go to a very deterministic, reductionist sense of what we can take from this information. And I actually think that's one of the biggest challenges that we have from a societal perspective. I was, I, you know, you mentioned you had your genome sequenced. I was offered to have my genome sequenced, and I had it sequenced and allowed my colleagues to use it for research purposes. And I didn't want to know, I didn't want to get the results back from it. So I did it as a, as a research project, but just opted not to have the results back. And the reason was because my grandfather had Alzheimer's disease and my mom has Parkinson's disease. And I know probably better than the vast majority of people across the globe that there is no gene that's going to tell me definitively if I'm going to get Alzheimer's disease or Parkinson's disease. And I also know that even if my genome shows nothing related to Alzheimer's disease or Parkinson's disease, I could still get either one of those or both of those. And I know that intellectually, and yet I recognize that from an emotional perspective, I would think differently about myself. I would expect things differently about myself. I would worry more. I would, whatever it was, based on the results of that test. And so this, this sort of tendency towards genetic determinism that we, that we have with each other and with ourselves and our sort of the quick way in which we stigmatize people based on their genetic information is really, really, really problematic. And so this is really sort of what we need to do is, is 
better educate in in a not just an intellectual way, but in an emotional way for people to get that for the vast majority of things. Now, there are some exceptions like the Huntington's disease gene. And, you know, there's a, there's there's some exceptions where if you have a particular gene, you will get a particular disease. But for the vast majority of things, it is much more complex than that. And your genomics is really just one piece of a, a very large puzzle. That brings back the story that uh, that I have when my wife and I were expecting our daughter, we went through genetic testing as, as was required, and there was a indication for spina bifida. Mm-hmm. Um, but that indication never came to fruition. Grace does not uh, exhibit any kind of uh, uh, trait uh, around that. But I, could, I, I remember having that test taken and getting the information. And as an individual, the question comes, well, how do you take that information and interpret it and utilize it, and how accurate is it? And I'm assuming those those kind of questions are the same kind of questions you think are present now as well, Amy. Um, yeah, absolutely. And you know, this comes up a lot as we start using large, like whole genome sequencing, whole exome sequencing prenatally. Um, not only is it problematic when you get a definitive answer of, you know, you have a genetic predisposition to a particular disease that we has been well documented, we understand it, and we know that this is associated with this disease. The penetrance is, you know, almost never 100%, which means that not everybody who has that predisposition is going to get that disease, and not everybody who you know, doesn't have that predisposition, won't get the disease. So, so that's problematic. But now, you know, we have, we have sort of this fire hose of genetic information coming at people, a lot of which, because we don't have the databases in place and we have, and the science is still relatively, you know, it's, it's not in its infancy, I would say, but it's, it's certainly still in its childhood or adolescence in terms of what we understand about the genome. There's a lot of things that we just don't understand. So people are increasingly getting information back that, you know, they go to their physician or they or participate in a research Study and they say, or they go through a direct-to-consumer company, they sequence their genome, and then it comes back and says, well, we have a variant of uncertain significance, right? So, or a variant of unknown significance, which is a, a really wonderful thing to hear, which basically means there's a change in your genome, and we really have no idea what it means, or if it's going to be pathogenic or likely pathogenic or completely benign. So, we just don't have enough information at this stage in the game to interpret what that means for you. And how do people make decisions about their health, about their family planning based on that type of uncertainty? Again, I I would like to point out, though, that there's uncertainty all over medicine, right? There always has been. It's the nature of medical practice is that there's uncertainty. This is just a new kind of uncertainty, and we have to figure out how to deal with that. So I I think it's interesting, particularly around the notion of uncertainty. And one of the jokes is for some of the maybe less reputable recreational genomic companies is to say, well, how many unhappy faces do you have for colorectal cancer, right? And <laughs> we, we can be a bit wry about this when you spend your whole career studying these things. But I will say, just to bring it back towards what is known when risks do have evidence and that there is something you can do about it. So this goes back almost to your first question. So. This is the concept of utility. And if you find something, can you do something about it? So we see a lot of personalized or precision medicine uh, back to single payer systems um, where they are considering, like I said earlier, understanding the risk portfolio. But if you get to the individual and you find you have a propensity for Lynch syndrome, uh, which is a much higher risk of getting colorectal cancer, 
would that information behoove someone to be more compliant with routine screenings? Very similar situation with breast cancer. In fact, the entire Angelina Jolie story uh, about having prophylactic mastectomy for the sake of eliminating the risks of breast and ovarian cancer on those cancer risks. So there are some very good and well-evidenced pathways of using this information. But in order to get to the point in which someone does an elective surgery based on a genetic marker, took an incredible amount of information. And you cannot assume, back to what Amy was saying, that that is the same amount of evidence and knowledge for everything else. So there's a very small list of genes for which there is true actionability. And just because of the nature of where we are with this, I mean, we're less than 20 years from the first one being done. Uh, of course, we don't know everything yet. And I just want to touch on this briefly because we see a convergence of data technologies, artificial intelligence, machine learning, that say, well, we will start to take all of these variables and throw it into an algorithm and it will give you a predictive signature. But the problem is we don't know enough about the biology yet and all of the factors, never mind getting common ontologies for just the phenotypes or the way in which we code medical interactions to actually deliver a lot of that. And so, you know, I also blithely say that artificial intelligence is really good for shipping logistics and tax law. Those are closed systems. We understand them fully, not biology. And so to try to uh, extract predictive signatures from retrospective analyses of imperfect data of numerous billions of individual factors is incredibly hard. So we certainly see the cart going before the horse, lots of signaling of promise, um, but it will be arduous to get many more things like breast cancer risk, col colorectal risk, and neurodegenerative risk. And there are other things, but not much more than about 60. So, so building on that, I think, Damon, I wonder if you would agree with this. It, it seems, I think, you know, it's imperative that we continue the research into this because, as I said, I think we're we're still in our childhood of understanding. Um, the technology has has just been driven the whole field, right? Because the cost has come down so significantly, and our ability to do the sequencing has become so much easier. And so we can generate the data all day long, and it's not that difficult, and it's not that expensive. The really hard part is understanding what it actually means for an individual patient. And that's where we need to continue to invest in the research enterprise. And from a clinical perspective, as Damon points out, there, there really are some good examples already of areas where we can judiciously use you know, whole genome sequencing, whole exome sequencing, we can engage in precision medicine, and we can really affect health outcomes. With respect to patient participation, what is the possibility or possibilities for that as precision medicine goes forward? If we hearken back just to specimen biobanks, and trying to figure out different kinds of models of how patients might more actively participate uh, with respect to their specimens. 
what's the possibility, the scope for patient participation in precision medicine as it goes forward as well? If I may start on that, I think we need to divide whether the participation in research is the nature of why they are interacting with people that think about genetics, or is this a matter of a facet of the course of care? So if we're talking about the previous, this is where those large national initiatives that Amy spoke about come into play. But you also then walk into a close cousin of this sort of research with human research protection, as well as some of the histories uh, that come with uh, different ethnic groups. Of course, the Henrietta Lack story came out. There is distrust. We are in the worst scenarios, creating the firmament of a Gattaca future or some other dystopian way of looking at eugenics. That is the most critical and horrible way of thinking of the use of the information balanced with the benefits that may come from these sorts of correlations and uh, alleviation of, of pain, discomfort, and, and disease. So I'm going to stop there. I'm sure Amy has a few things to say in that regard. Yeah, I think in terms of how we engage with patients and research participants, it's really critical that they feel like they have a you know, stake in this game. I mean, this is what we're really talking about is initiatives and sort of a movement in healthcare that is focused on the individual, but at a population level, right? So, so this is some, it's, it's kind of ironic because it's precision medicine. We want to, it's, it's really focused on the individual as, that kind of takes us away from this broader way of thinking about evidence-based medicine. And yet we want to focus on every individual within the population. So it's, it, it's, it's sort of a marrying of population health and individual individualized treatment. So, you know, we've done a lot of research on uh, with re, with patients and research participants in this space and kind of have spoken to them about what's most important to them from a participation perspective. And it's really, you know, fairly intuitive in terms of they want to feel respected. They want to feel like they're partners in this. They want to feel like there's transparency. They understand what's going on. Um, they want to have access to information that others have information about them. And I don't think we do a really great job of that yet. I think some places do a better job of it than others. I think large health systems are starting to clue in um, and are starting to do a much better job. And I'm sure Damon's group is, is leading the way in, in many regards with, with respect to this. But we, I think as a whole, you know, we could do a better job at engaging patients and participants in a way that makes them feel like they're really part of the process and they're not just being used as a means to a larger end. I think another element of this is if we look at the public perceptions around social media in general and privacy and some of the revelations of breaches uh, that have occurred in Facebook and other platforms. So there is, of course, a tremendous amount of study in this regard. But what if that information wasn't just how often you put photos of your cats up and everything else, but uh, I'm being glib, but it's your genetic information. Now, I will say these other folks getting involved in genetics, which we assume is healthcare, that much genetic testing is done as a proxy to therapeutic development intelligence. And if you look at certain acquisitions lately by pharmaceutical companies of EMR companies and diagnostic companies, it becomes a data game. One part of this that's interesting is I was just in San Francisco 
In the middle of San Francisco is the new Salesforce building. It is the largest structure. It's massive. It is beautiful. It's all built on data. In fact, most of that city is built on data. And if we look at Google, LinkedIn, all of the others, that's what it's built on. So we're seeing a lot of use of this information as a proxy to healthcare, but really as it relates to the much more profitable business, which is therapeutics and pharmaceuticals. So we're seeing in a lot of ways then the opportunity for abuse, the aggregation, and sometimes even the loss of line of sight into the information given, particularly as it relates to industry acquisitions, mergers, things like that. So I think what we're getting at is a bit frightening, but very few people understand the whole piece of this. In fact, even people within the industry looking across all of this would really understand these these risks and where it goes and, and what is the question of ownership of the information and rights around the information. You know, when people do direct-to-consumer genetic testing, oftentimes these testing companies give you information not only about your health risks, but some of them also give you information or they exclusively give you information uh, about your ancestry as well. So where did you come from? You know, uh, and in doing that, they one of the services they offer is to try to link you up with people who you might be genetically related to. And so a lot of people find this very interesting, valuable, entertaining, whatnot. I didn't know much about genetic genealogy until I started looking into these databases. And apparently it's a very, very large industry. And so there are now platforms that people can use. So there are many companies out there where you can where you can test your genetic genealogy and it can tell you who you're related to. And if you find out that you're you know, if, if you and your children are both in the database and it shows that you're not related to each other, then you have a, a problem, right? And so I will frequently get people who come to me and tell me about their interesting non-paternity issues that come up through their testing on 23andMe and things like that. But these, these websites and these platforms actually raise a lot of other issues as well. And so because you can get your ancestry testing through a variety of different companies, 23andMe, Ancestry.com, uh, FamilyTreeDNA.com. There's a lot of companies that are out there that will do this. There has now developed sort of a new industry of these independent platforms where you can take your DNA that's sequenced through those various companies and upload it to a platform where they collect that information from multiple sites, multiple companies. And it's, a, it's sort of a, a meta connector where you then can identify people who you might be genetically related to. So one of those companies is called GEDmatch. And what's what's been really interesting in the news lately is there was uh, a lot of press recently about a law enforcement use of these databases in order to help them solve crimes. So there was a long-standing unsolved case in California that has been called the Golden, uh, about the Golden State Killer. This is one particular individual who is thought to have committed at least 12 murders and 50 rapes over the course of about a decade in the 1970s and 1980s before he kind of seemed to go off the scene. 
And law enforcement was able to actually collect a lot of DNA from the crime scenes of these various crimes. And all of the 50 states and the federal government has certain forensic databases where they collect DNA of convicted criminals. And in some states, they collect DNA of people who have been accused of crimes, and they upload them into a large national database. And so law enforcement has for a long time been able to search those databases and try to match crime scene DNA to the DNA in those databases. But it doesn't contain a whole lot of information about your DNA. They're not doing whole genome sequencing. They're not doing whole exome sequencing. It's it's a fairly small amount of information. So investigators in this particular case tried to match the crime scene DNA to their uh, to the national forensic database and did not have success. And with the sort of proliferation of these genetic genealogy databases and these direct-to-consumer genetic testing databases, they decided to try something new and to try to identify the suspect by matching to those databases. So these are all publicly available databases. There are no protections in place to protect people's privacy. They know when they submit their data that it's going to be shared publicly because the whole purpose of it is to link you to people who you might be related to, who you might not otherwise have known that you were related to. And so in this case, they they uh, created actually a fake profile using GED match, GED match, and they uploaded the DNA from the crime scene and sort of click that they were the person or they had authority to to upload this DNA, and they asked who was related to the person whose DNA this was. And they found a partial match from somebody who seemed to be based on sort of the genetics, uh, uh, I think it was a third or fourth degree cousin or a four, third or fourth degree relative. So they took this information and they built out a very, very extensive family tree of that individual who was in the database and eventually narrowed down their search to this particular individual, um, James D'Angelo in California, followed him around, surreptitiously collected his DNA from discarded materials that he was throwing away in the garbage and things that he had touched, and then matched his DNA to the crime scene DNA and he was able to get a perfect match. And so this, you know, helped them solve this crime. Um, and in many ways, people think that that's fantastic and that, you know, that, sh- that we should continue to use these types of databases for that purpose. And on the other side, you know, this, is, this was done by matching his DNA to somebody who he probably has no idea exists or is a genetic relative of his. And then they were able to trace it back to him. And so it raises certain questions about sort of, you know, it raises, first of all, Fourth Amendment questions about whether they could do this without a, a warrant or without, um, you know, any sort of, uh, is this an unreasonable search and seizure of this of genetic information? Are we getting to a place where we're going to have sort of full government genetic surveillance? And it also raises a lot of questions about privacy that people have, have been talking a lot about in the news. Amy, given the advances of precision medicine, given the questions that arise What do you see currently from the work that you do that gives you hope about the directions we're going? Well, I think a major accomplishment was in 2008 when we we passed the Federal Genetic Information Non-Discrimination Act. This is something that many people spent years lobbying for, and it's certainly not a perfect law, but it is one step in the direction of trying to help protect against the discriminatory use of genetic information in employment and in health insurance. And it goes a long way towards doing that. You know, there's a lot of 
criticism about the law because, A, it exceptionalizes genetic information. And as uh, we've been talking about this entire show, you know, that's just one piece of the puzzle. And as you start to collect sort of all kinds of information about individuals, there might be sensitive information in there that deserves equal types of protection that are not currently protected under the law. And also related to that is it doesn't protect against everything. So it really only deals with health insurance and employment, but life insurers, long-term care, disability, nefarious third parties, law enforcement, all kinds of groups can still use genetic information in ways that people might find objectionable. But that's one step forward. I think, you know, in the context of, of medical care and in research, we do have protections that try to prevent access to certain types of information. Where I think we could go further and I think we could do a lot better is in developing a legal system that actually provides for significant sanctions against misuse. Um, and so our, our sort of approach from a legal perspective up to this point has been prevent access, prevent access, prevent access. And I think people are starting to recognize that you can't really prevent access. We're seeing this with social media hacks and, you know, the, the Equifax hacks and people who could get access to information regardless of our Herculean efforts to protect it. Um, but we don't, we haven't really spent as much time on the other end which is when they do get access to it and they use it in ways that might be harmful or in ways that people just are not okay with, what are the sanctions that are in place? What happens? How do we hold them accountable? What are the penalties? And we don't really have a good system for that in the United States. I would also add that all of this needs to be put into place with some of those other non-medical privacy issues. You know, there's this kind of mind-opening understanding that there is the possibility for a relational database from genomic to consumerism to individual behaviors that could be so incredibly precise. So these marketing lists that you can purchase, in fact, they're used. If someone's going to build a hospital, they want to know the demographics of the area. And there are companies that provide these, as well as targeted marketing. There is entire cottage industries now for use of genetic information, which is targeted marketing of nutraceuticals, of diets, of foods, of lifestyles, uh, even in dating. So I think when you start realizing that this facet of a person, while exceptional, is being deemed sometimes not exceptional, or it may hold something that's useful, and uh, parsing those use case scenarios into their appropriate context, then I think from those use case scenarios, you find what protections are needed. This is completely a work in progress. Is there any piece that you wanted to cover that you feel would just round out our conversation so far, either Amy or Damon? So let's back up just a little bit. Every time someone has an interaction with a clinician, they're asked about their family history. Mm -hmm. And so what we're really getting at in some ways is a digitized, history of the family based upon what was inherited. And now instead of building pedigrees and family trees and figuring out what my great uncle died of, you have hints of that recorded in your DNA over time. Mm. So we're still getting it. Fundamental issues of knowing the person and honoring the person by knowing them deeper for good reasons. Mm -hmm. And so this will continue to play out as we learn more about it become more precise in what risk means, and then 
having more things to do about it, which, by the way, has cost implications, on where this goes. You know, it's interesting because I think, Damon, what you say about people, you know, people want to know themselves and they and it's also interesting with we were talking about these genetic genealogy databases. People want to feel connected to others, even if it's somebody you've never met. If you're told that you are a, a genetic relative, you can sometimes create relationships in ways and communities in ways even before. And it reminds me of this of this story of a, a friend of mine who has known for a long time. He's probably in his 60s. And his father during medical school was an anonymous sperm donor. Um, so he's known this for a long time, and he did 23andMe. And actually, through 23andMe, identified a half-sister who was the product of his father's sperm donation. So now they're both in their 60s. They're meeting for the first time. They live across the country from each other, and they have developed this familial relationship with each other. They flew, he flew out there and met her. She had no idea that her bio, that her father was not her biological father until she got this information. They talk every week on the phone. They say, I love you when they hang up. I mean, they've, they've really created this sort of family out of this information, which is really, really interesting. So it's not directly related to sort of the, the medicalization of this, the precision medicine, but it, I think it speaks to the sociological phenomenon that we're seeing of why people find this to be so interesting and of such benefit. Today we have heard about the advances made and the questions that have arisen as the work of precision medicine evolves. Appreciation for our guests and listeners. Thanks everyone. My name is Kevin Murphy and this is Ethics Lab. We hope you have enjoyed this edition of the Ethics Lab podcast. Exploring the path from better knowledge to practical results in healthcare ethics. Ethics Lab was created by Kevin Murphy and Russell Keithline. Thanks for listening. Join us again. Yeah.